0: boys and girls welcome to the two-footed podcast today is thursday the 16th of september we're brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor liberty shield liberty shield is a vpn provider a virtual privacy network allows you to go online access anything you're geoblocked from by changing your location to one of their many servers while also keeping your data safe from miscreants Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can now find on Etsy. Just download the Etsy app to your phone. And check out EPL Index or Anfield Index. Lots of good merch on there. Right, folks. Champions League again last night. Borussia Dortmund beat Basictus 2 1. Jude Bellingham once again showing what an incredible talent he is. And Erling Haaland, who's just a machine, putting Dortmund 2 0 up at half time. Francisco Montero with the late consolation for Basictus. Big shock. Sheriff beat Shakhtar Donetsk. Sheriff, I think, were expected to be the whipping boys, being the first team from Moldova to qualify for a Champions League group stage. But great start for them. Absolutely incredible start for them in the Champions League to get a 2-0 win against a good team. Like, Shakhtar Donetsk are not... Some random group. These are a really good club that are well-run, have quality players. You look through that team, Matt is a good centre-back, Dodo a right-back, Marcus Alonso in midfield, uh, Tete, Pedrinho and Fernando behind the striker, all interesting, talented players. And Sheriff get the 2-0 win. Very, very impressive, very good start for them. If it's the only points they get, they'll still be thrilled. They've outperformed expectations with that win alone. Uh, Real Madrid won, Inter Milan nil. Rodrigo with a late goal, 89 minutes from an Eduardo Camavinga assist. A little bit of a of an undeserved win, I would say. I thought Inter were the better team in this game, but Real have that Champions League experience and it paid off. Porto nil, Atletico Madrid nil in Madrid. A fairly stale, dour game, if we're being honest. Three shots on target in the whole game. Only 11 shots combined. Uh, Chancel and Pemba sent off in the 95th minute. And really, that was about the, the height of the excitement in that, that one. Uh, Club Bruges won. Paris Saint-Germain won. Very, very surprising, considering PSG had Messi, Mbappe and Neymar up front. Uh, uh, Ander Herrera scored the only goal for PSG after 15 minutes. Hans Vanaken equalizing on 27. Uh, PSG, as you'd expect, dominated the ball, but really struggled to create chances. Only nine shots in the game, four on target, as opposed to 16 for Bruges and seven on target. Really disappointing flat performance from PSG. And Pochettino can't afford many more of them because. His superiors will not stand for it. They will not stand for failure this year at all. Uh, Ajax 5, Sporting Lisbon won. This was a, a one-sided ass-kicking. Sebastian Haller scoring four goals. Uh, he scored after two minutes and nine minutes. Then Steven Burgos scored after 39 minutes. Paulinho Pol- had scored after 33 to make it 2-1. Berghaus made it three, uh, 3-1. And then Haller again in the 51, 51st minute, sorry, and the 63rd minute to make it 5. I would say the result flattered Ajax a little bit, but they did look ruthless going forward. And they were a lot of fun to watch. Anthony, the right winger, is is just a joy to watch. He's so skillful, so inventive. Do Tadic obviously does do things. I really enjoyed having a look at Ryan Gravenberch again as well, so... That was interesting. Um I think I think it's fair to say sporting will have better days. This was just a very unfortunate sequence of events where their goalkeeper developed smoke for hands. Uh Manchester City six, RB Leipzig three. Um I think the more telling thing about this game is that City conceded three goals. A Christopher and Kunku Hattrick. For Leipzig on 42, 51 and 73. Angelino, formerly of Manchester City, sent off on 79. City were fairly ruthless going forward. Uh, Nathan Aki on 16. Nordi Mukiele, own goal on 28. And a Riyad Mahrez penalty in stoppage time at the end of the first half. It sent City in 3-1 up at half time. Jack Grealish made it 4-2. Cancelo made it 5-3, and then Gabriel Jesus made it 6-3. City seemed to take umbrage every time Leipzig scored. Uh, They replied with a goal of their own within five minutes, so it was almost like they got slapped in the face and decided to punch them back. Um, City looked good, but they didn't look good defensively. They looked good going forward. They played with a lot of purpose. They were very, very inventive. But they did struggle defensively. Now I would put some of that down to Nathan Aki. Um didn't think he had a particularly good game, didn't think Zinchenko played particularly well at left back. But all things considered, uh City will be just happy to get their three points and move on. And with the way PSG looked against Club Bruges, they might even be looking forward to playing PSG. Uh Liverpool three, Milan two, Liverpool. Really should have beaten Milan very comprehensively. For 15 minutes, they just tore them apart. They got the goal on nine minutes. Trent Alexander-Arnold cross, turned into his own net by Ficayo Tomore. Then they got a penalty. Mo Salah had scored 17 in a row, I believe it was, and then missed. Um, a good save by Magnon, but a bad penalty. Manion also saved the follow-up from Diogo Jota. Liverpool dominated the first 40 minutes of this game. The first 15, they blew Milan away. Milan started to get a bit of a foothold, but Liverpool were still the dominant team. And then Liverpool fell to pieces. Uh, Antti Rebic scored on 42, and then Brahim Diaz scored 90 seconds later. Just a string of errors by the Liverpool defence for both goals, but both goals stemmed from Jordan Henderson being out of position, not doing his job properly in the first instance, Joel Matip stepped out to try and cover the space. Henderson had vacated by wandering off up the field. And that left a gap behind him. Milan played round him. And Andy Rebic went in one-on-one and slid the ball past Allison. In the second instance, again, Henderson's a mile out of position. Milan play into that space. Fabinho comes across to try and cover. But again, they just play into his space and work their way through. And Rebic gets in again. Andy Robertson makes the block on the line but Brahim Diaz is the one who finishes up. Uh, Liverpool came out in the second half then and just looked very, very good. Uh, Mo Salah scored on 48. Lovely bit of work by Divock Origi in the build-up. And then Jordan Henderson on 69 with a half-volley from the edge of the area that kind of skipped off the ground, picked up speed, and found its way into the corner of the net. To give you an idea of Liverpool's dominance last night, 23 shots to Milan, 7. 15 corners to Milan's 2 It was largely one way traffic But Milan did have That 5 minute spell just before half time Where they got the 2 goals And it's a great start for Liverpool But Milan will take will take heart from the fact That they were able to carve them open twice That was a Milan team without Zlatan as well um, But all things considered A good win for Liverpool and a good start To their Champions League campaign uh, Europa League action tonight And we can chat a bit about that tomorrow Big news in the Premier League, the Premier League's longest-serving manager, Sean Dyche, who I think is one of the best managers in the league. I'd have him in my top six or seven. He has signed a new contract at Burnley, one that will see him stay at Turf Moor until 2025. So huge for Burnley, absolutely huge for Burnley to get Dyche locked in. He's He is the most important aspect of that club. There can be absolutely no doubt that Sean Dyche is the sole reason they are a Premier League club. You look at what he took over. They were 14th in the championship. He took over October 30th, 2012. They finished that season in 11th. He had them as high as 7th at one point. But some disappointing late results knocked them down a few spots. But they were a club not really going anywhere. Um, The following season, he gets them promoted. He turned it round in just over 18 months, from mid-table championship to promotion to the Premier League. Very, very impressive. Up they came in second place. Into the Premier League, they came for the 14-15 season. First season up, not quite ready, didn't quite have the, the squad quality or depth, and then they went in 19th position. And that might have been it for them. You know, small club, small budget. They lost Danny Ings that summer. A lot of people might have written them off. Shouldn't have. They won the championship the following year. Finishing first is always very impressive in the championship. And when you look at the other teams that were there, the likes of Middlesbrough, Brighton, Hull, Derby, all clubs spending a lot more money than them, uh, for them to come up in first place was really, really impressive. They came back into the Premier League in sixteen seventeen, and they have been there since. 16th the first year, 7th the second year, an incredible achievement to finish 7th in the Premier League with Burnley, 15th the next year, 10th in 1920, and then 17th last year when they had that horrendous start having spent no money in the summer, short pre-season and a, Weird pre-season as well, obviously, with COVID. Finished 17th and um, and stayed up. At the moment, they sit 18th in the Premier League. They've had a disappointing start, one point from four games, but they only really have themselves to blame. They were ahead against Brighton and kind of threw that one away. Uh, you never really given gave them a chance against Liverpool. They got a point against Leeds at home, which was a good result and they were probably unlucky not to get all three because Bamford scored late on. And then they went one up against Everton, and then they just had some some crazy minutes, about seven minutes of lunacy, um, where their defence was all over the place. The midfield wasn't tucked in the way it should be, wasn't protecting the defence, and Everton get three goals. Burnley should have more points on the board. It's down to themselves. They don't. Ah, uh, they've got Arsenal and Leicester next, so those will be tough. But Sean Dyche is Sean Dyche, and he will he will get results wherever he is. He will get results for Burnley. He will keep them in the league. Um, it's brilliant for them to get him re-signed on the long-term deal. They've obviously backed him a little bit this past summer as well, which is is good to see. Maybe not enough, but Connor Roberts, Max Cornett, and and Nathan Collins represents a spend of close to 30 million, um, which is, is promising signs. You know, if they could give him that every summer and a little bit in the January window, Dice will build a good team over a couple of years. It's a good team as as things stand. You've got Nick Pope, quality player, one of the better goalkeepers in the league, definitely the best English goalkeeper in the league. You've got James Tarkovsky, probably the most underrated centre-back in the league, should be in the England squad. Uh, he's turned Ben Me around. He's made him a quality centre-back look at the group in midfield neat and tidy but very very efficient Dwight McNeil is obviously the star and then Chris Wood is the goal getter it's it's a solid group if he can add pieces on the periphery and he's done that a bit this summer and he'll look to do more in the future Burnley will will continue to establish themselves as you know just a solid mid-table Premier League team someone you don't really enjoy playing against they could do it toning down some of the physicality you know in their four games we've already seen Two managers come out livid about some of the challenges that they've thrown in. Maybe Dyche needs to dial that back. But look, he he gets so much out of his players. And with the new training ground they've got there, with the work they're doing on Turf Moor, the upgrades that they have planned. I think the future looks quite bright for Burnley and keeping dice is, is absolutely key to all of that. Right folks. Um, it is Thursday, so it is questions day and we have some good ones today. Uh, we've good ones every week, obviously, but we've got some good ones today. Um, so let's jump into these. So some of these are from, um, some from discord and some have come via Twitter. So, uh, AMK two eight, eight, nine. Say two teams are playing in a match that has to have a winner. During that match, a player is sent off. The game ends even after extra time and they go into a shootout. The shootout ends up being the greatest or worst, depending on how you look at it. And both teams go through all their players that can take a penalty kick. The team that sustained a red card gets to the player that was sent off. I imagine that team would have to forfeit the penalty and have it marked as missed, allowing the other team to send up their next uh, taker and potentially scored a winning goal. No, uh, it actually just skips him. It actually just skips him. That's what happens. So in some circumstances, if you've had a player sent off and he's a legitimately bad penalty taker, it, that will help you. Once you get to penalties, you just skip that one. So you will do circuits of 10 and the opposition will do circuits of 11. They will have to have all 11 takers come up in rotation and you'll just have to have 10. That's how that one will work. Uh, De Langster... How do you think your understanding of football has changed as you've gotten older? Oh, you're calling me old now. That's nice. Um, do you feel you've got a better comprehension of the game, such as what makes a good player or bad player than you did 10 years ago or more? Is your understanding consistently, constantly changing? And if so, what do you feel has influenced you most in changing your mind on how you view certain things, like if one player is better than the other? So for me, a lot of what I do is... You know, is watching players and kind of trying to see who's what players are coming that are going to be really exciting or what player could be a good fit here and there. And I think one thing I've gotten used to more is rather than trying to fit the player to the club, try and fit the club to the player. So oftentimes you'd look at Let's just say, for example, Liverpool need a number nine. So I would often look at number nines and think, right, well, if he was to sign for Liverpool, what kind of changes would Liverpool need to make to make this player work? So instead, now what I do is I just look for what kind of changes would the the player need to make? Are they capable of those changes to then fit in said team? Um, I spend a lot more time now kind of watching... Games in, I suppose it's slow motion is probably the best way to watch it. I watch games at half speed. I watch things at quarter speed. To watch a lot more off-ball stuff. So, i was always had a fascination with defences and how defences work. Not just in their setup, but in, ter- in terms of defensive rotations, positional switching. So, for example, the Liverpool goals last night are a prime example. when. Matip steps out into midfield to cover for Henderson. Ideally, what you're looking for there is Joe Gomez to slide across to right side centre back, and either Fabinho to drop to the holding midfield role and Naby Keita to come across into the sorry Fabinho to drop to the other centre back role and Naby Keita to come across into the holding role, or Andy Robertson to drop to left-side centre-back and Naby to drop to the left-back position, depending on where they are, depending on who's got the shorter move to make. I'm watching when they break down. The other thing I like to do is I like to reverse-engineer goals from a defensive point of view. So again, with that goal, that first Milan goal last night, the, the glaring error is Matip charging out of position. But I like to look for, why has he done that? Because, you know, with a player like Joel Matip, positioning and judgment are two of his strongest things. So for him to make that move out of defense is quite unusual. So for me, I try to look back to the root cause of things, try and follow the chain of events to where the goal began and where the first defensive issue was. Because in almost every goal, you're going to find at least one defensive mistake. Like, there's obviously those worldies that come out of nowhere where it's just an incredible hit and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Or a brilliantly worked goal and there's nothing a defense can do about it. But most goals, I think, anyway, there's always something that you look at and think, "That's that guy should have done better there. Even if it's a case where... Like, you know the famous Maradona goal against England where he picks it up in his own half? Like, for me, someone should have just taken him down. Someone should have just taken him out 30, 40 yards from goal. Simple as that. But that's not a defensive error. That's just what I would want my player to do. But a goal like last night where people will look and say, Oh, that's Joel Matip's fault. Well, it's not. Matip reacts to something else because someone else has failed to do their job. In this case, Jordan Henderson. In the second case, Jordan Henderson again. So Fabinho steps across to cover for Henderson. Naby steps across to cover for him. But Milan played through that gap. And that's how they open Liverpool pull-up. Both goals come from the root cause of Jordan Henderson being poorly positioned. And then jogging back. Not sprinting back. Being lazy in his defensive work as he is prone to do. So... Those are things I've gotten a better comprehension of over the last few years is finding the root cause of defensive issues, as well as looking at shape and rotations and things like that. They're, those two things are the things that I watch for the most, like defensive structure, including the holding midfielder and you know players that could fit for X club. Um, those are kind of my two main things. and I think those are things I've gotten new understandings on as I've gotten older. Um, Willology, who would be your best five penalty takers of any players currently playing, and which goalkeeper would you say is the best at saving penalties? Um, That's a good one. So I think Donnarumma is particularly good at saving penalties because he's so big, and he, he waits and waits and waits for the penalty taker to make a a choice. He forces that ball striker to, to make the choice before he makes contact. Whereas a lot of goalkeepers go early, they gamble and they go early and they hope they're right. And that's why you see great penalty takers often take a slower run up or, you know, the hesitation step that we, we see from like a John Aldridge, let the goalkeeper make his decision. And then I'm just going to put it wherever he's not. You know, you see Bruno and Jorginho, um, both of them make the goalkeeper make the decision. And the, the rare times they miss, such as Jorginho in the uh, European Championships final, Pickford was brilliant for that penalty. He waited and waited and waited, and then Jorginho had to make the decision of oh I've gotta I've gotta put the ball somewhere. And the problem with that technique, especially for Jorginho, is he doesn't generate a lot of power in his in his strike. Bruno's a bit better at at getting the power, but Bruno's a better striker of the ball anyway. But when both of them have missed, as as has happened, I think in the last year and a half or so for both, it's been because the keeper forced them into a decision. I think Donnarumma is excellent at that. I think he makes the attacker make the decision. So. I'll go Donnarumma, but I do think Mike Mannion's pretty good. Um, Keylor Navas is a very good penalty taker, penalty stopper. I'll go Donnarumma though. Uh, as for five takers, Jorginho and Bruno for me, I think are both brilliant. So I'll have both of them. I'll have Messi. I think he's phenomenal. I think Kane is a brilliant penalty taker. I think Kane strikes the ball so well and so cleanly and he does the the old Van Nistelrooy trick of he wants to put it in the in the side netting so the ball is constantly curving away from the goalkeeper so if you look at Kane's penalties more often than not he goes to his left the goalkeeper's right but he wants to put it in the side netting because it, that it's the longest possible reach for a goalkeeper. So unless they really gamble and go early, in which case he'll just switch it up and go to the other side. He's got a place he puts the ball. And he basically dares goalkeepers to try and beat him to it. And if they go too early, he'll just make them look like a fool and put it on the other side. But I'll go Kane as my fourth. And for a fifth. Hmm. Can't really say Salah after last night. Fabinho's a brilliant penalty taker. Like really, really elite level penalty taker. But doesn't take them for Liverpool, so I can't include him. Hmm. That fifth one is a that fifth one is is a tricky one because I think the first four picked themselves. I don't think anyone would have any doubts. So you're also talking about, can you take them in pressure situations? And I know Jorginho missed in the European Championship final, but I'd still trust him in a a pressure situation to score a penalty, as I would with Bruno, as I would with... um, With Messi. Now Messi doesn't have a great conversion rate. I think Messi's conversion rate. Is actually a little bit. On the lower side. Let me think. Zlatan. I'll go Zlatan. As my next. As my fifth penalty taker. I think Zlatan is a great. Because Zlatan. Believes in himself. So much. That he's always going to score. So I'll go with him. Yeah. Zlatan is my fifth. Um, And Donnarumma as the keeper. Fact 1977. What do you see as the emerging play style trends in the next five years? Which managerial practice will clubs be chasing in 2026? And is there anything good for the poison girls after the quiet transfer window for Liverpool? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty good. Uh, like you said, Liverpool took the sting out of it last night with the win over Milan. The start of the season's been good. The doubts are just, can they sustain it over the season with the smaller squad? You know, they've picked 20... 24 players, not 25. Uh, two of them are goalkeepers who will never play. So Liverpool have a 22-man squad, which includes players that Jurgen Klopp has shown he doesn't really believe are good enough. Uh, Divock Origi, Minamino, Oxlade-Chamberlain. These are all players that have disappeared for months on end, despite being fit. Naby Kate has disappeared. Um, Costa Simicus didn't get a kick last year. And then you've got the injury-prone players. You know you've got Matip, Gomez, Henderson, Milner, Naby, Ox, Thiago. Like, there's a lot of injury-prone players in the squad as well. And then you've got the big doubt over whether or not Firmino and Mane can re- rediscover their form. Uh, because if they can't, that's going to be it's going to become a bit of a liability for the club. So there, there, there's where sort of the doubts are, and th- those are things that you see in February, March of next season. They're not things you'll see now. So for the people that want to blow their own trumpets and say, oh, but the squad, you're talking out of your backsides. We won't know until we get to February, March. Harvey Elliott's already out for the season or until kind of towards the end of the season. And that's already a major headache. So we'll, we'll wait and we'll see. Um, What managerial practice will the clubs chase am I'm, I'm not really sure what you mean by that. Um. Do you mean what managers, as in like what managers are up and coming? I think Jesse Marsh is one that a lot of clubs will, will show interest in. I think by then Nagelsman may well have established himself as one of the best coaches in the world. Um I expect Gerardo Sioni to become quite a big name there in the next few years. If you mean will we see a change in terms of more managers becoming kind of the leading hand at the club or will we see more of the director of football and head coach aspect i think director of of football and head coach will become more and more prevalent and i think managers like you know your jurgen Klopps and that that have quite a lot of sway will become less and less common in the game i think we'll see shorter contracts for managers i think that's something we're already going to see a move to we're already starting to see a little bit of a move to where managers aren't going to get the five and six year contracts when they walk in the door, because if things go wrong, the club end up either stuck with them because they can't afford to sack them or sacking them and paying them a fortune. So I do think we will see a lot more of the, the head coach type of situation. I also think one thing we will see is we'll see a lot more assistant managers who maybe aren't bigger names get opportunities. So We've seen a few, and oftentimes oftentimes it doesn't work. But I think with a really strong director of football, it can work. So, for example, Pepin Linders at Liverpool is one of the best coaches in world football. And I think we will see a situation with, the, with him and others like him where, yes, they may not be great managers, but they're incredible coaches, and we'll see... Directors of football become more like what we see as general managers in American sports, where they'll handle more of the personnel side off the field. And the head coach will handle it on the field, on the training ground and on the pitch. They'll handle the players in that space. But the director of football will have more involvement in the day to day squad in terms of any kind of, you know, personal conflicts. Personal issues, they already handle all the contracts and stuff like that, so they'll have stronger relationships and maybe be uh, maybe even act more as the disciplinarian side of thing and allow the coach to coach. I think we could see we we see that a lot in American sports, and I do think football tends to trend after American sports in terms of scouting analysis obviously statistical analysis has become. Enormous and we're still quite a way behind the American sports in in that regard. But just in terms of scouting, like we've seen quantum leaps made in the last four to five years in football, but we're still well behind where the Americans are now. Part of that is the structure of their sports and how how you uh, how you identify players, especially in games like baseball and American football, where it's one action at a time. I think it's also the transition nature with the with trades and stuff. You get more of an opportunity to work things out. You can often have, you can often do a proper sit down interview with a player before you sign them. In those regards, whereas now with the power agents have, I, I don't think you see it as often. Um, so we're we're stepping towards that in in terms of scouting and recruitment, and as well like things like background checks, which were never prevalent in football before, but were big in America. Now they're very prevalent in football. So I, I think we trend after them. But when you look at what the American sports have done in, in terms of scouting and recruitment for years, where like they've had general managers for however long. Red Arbuck was a general manager back, I think, in the 70s. so 70s and 80s. So we're only getting the director of football as a major thing in the last... 10, 15 years, probably 15 years. And in the UK, it's only really become a thing in the last six to seven years. So we're well behind them. But you know, we are catching up quite rapidly because the blueprint is there. We can steal quite a lot from what they do. And I think we'll see more of that in terms of managerial practice where a general manager has more control and the head code and it is there longer term like i think you could see guys in jobs for 10 15 years but they have a head coach and maybe that head coach changes every 4 to 5 years but that person is in charge of the tactical side of things on the field the training you know getting the team game preparation and obviously in match as well i don't think we'll see i don't think we'll see a return to what we had back in the 50s and 60s where the board might pick the team which was a bizarre thing that used to happen And it used to happen at Liverpool. And the first time Bill Shankly was offered the Liverpool job, he turned it down because the board used to pick the team. So he would be in charge of getting them prepared for the game and in the game, but he wouldn't be allowed to pick the team. Um, I don't think we'll see a return to that. But I do think we'll see more of that general manager, head coach uh, dynamic. Um, Fox is Fox what do you think is the best move for Bellingham and where do you think he ends up the best move for Bellingham is to stay at Borussia Dortmund until 2023 at the very earliest if not beyond Um, where do I think he ends up is an interesting one I think he ends up at Chelsea if I'm being honest I think he ends up at Chelsea Uh, who is this this is from Pim Taradox who is the Skip Bayless of English football and why so for those that don't know Skip Bayless is a talking head on American television I think he's on he's on Fox Sports uh he does the Skip and Shannon show with Shannon Sharp, where basically two idiots uh shout and ball and make really bad arguments about football and have really hot takes all with a female moderator there also to draw eyeballs uh if you think we don't know what you're doing America we do um Who is the English version of Skip Bayless? So who's a loudmouth, know-nothing fool who says things clearly to get a rile of the people? Uh, Adrian Durham on TalkSport. Without question, it's Adrian Durham on TalkSport. James, I feel like in the past, we often see elite talents break into the first teams in the early 20s, but nowadays it seems like all the biggest talents are breaking through into starting 11s as teenagers and playing so much football Mbappe, Haaland, Trent, Foden Bellingham, Cam- Camavinga, Sancho and so much more is, there an ass- is this an assessment you agree with and if you do, do you think it's a good thing especially with all the football going on year round, do you think it could have a negative impact on their long term careers look at someone like Pedri he's 18, played pretty much every game last season, the Euros, the Olympics and now still starting for Barcelona yes, it's 100% um, what we are seeing Players getting pushed into the first team earlier, often too early, it must be said. And I do think it's going to have a negative long-term effect. So think of it traditionally. We would always have thought of a player being at his peak or in his prime from like 27 to 31, 32. That was the prime of a player. Now, I think a player's prime probably starts at like 25 and runs to about 29 because they start earlier. And I, I don't think your, your prime is, is relative to your age. I think it's relative to how many minutes you've played. So for me, I look at that and I think, okay, if a player starts at 16, And another player starts at 20. That player who started at 16 should peak much earlier. Now it might be a thing that they peak at 24. Like you look at Wayne Rooney. As a prime example of this. Rooney broke into the Everton team at 16. Moved to Manchester United at 18. And I would argue that Wayne Rooney's peak was very, very early in his career. I would argue that Rooney was probably at his peak from 07 to about 2012. So that's a six-year spell. but five, six-year spell. I would say that was Rooney's peak. But in 2012, Wayne Rooney was only 27. And I think he was declining after that. And if you look at his goal numbers, it supports it. You go back and look at how he played. It absolutely supports it. I mean, Wayne Rooney is still only 35. And he was finished as a real footballer in 2017 at 32. Even look at you know what he was doing for England. And from 2015 on, he was done as a, as a high-level player for England. He still started a lot in 2016. But his international career really ended in 2016. Didn't play in seventeen, Won cap in 2018. But his, his international career was done in 2016 at 31. This is England's all-time top scorer. And he stopped being a real player for them, like a real impactful player in 2015. At 30, I think Wayne Rooney peaked at like 22, 20, 20, probably 22. And by 27 was the end of his peak. By 29, he was clearly in decline. And by 32, his career was done and dusted. You know, he went back to Everton. He wasn't very good. He scored a couple of goals, but he wasn't good. Um, he went to DC United, and yeah, he looked he look good in, in, in MLS, and great. But with, with all due respect, Wayne Rooney should still have been one of the better players in the Premier League at that point, not knocking about in, the, in MLS. Um, so I do think it, it can cause players to be finished earlier. They're still getting the same length of career, and there'll always be exceptions to this rule. Lionel Messi came into the game at 17, and his peak was probably a decade long. Realistically, Messi from the age of 22 to 32 was unlike anything we've ever seen. He's probably still the best player in the world now. At I think he's 35, which is not something, again, that we've ever seen before. We've never seen a messy before. We've never seen anyone sustain that level. Um, so there's exceptions, of course, but yeah, I, I do think it has a, a has a negative effect. That is that is generally something I agree with. Um, Isaac Gilding, who's the worst in every position at the moment in the Premier League, basically a starting eleven of the dregs of the league. Maybe throw in some subs as well. Okay, <clears throat> let me let me prepare for this one. So I think the worst goalkeeper is, uh, is Jose Sá. I think that's by a considerable margin as well. I think, I think he's a genuinely dreadful goalkeeper. Um, at right back, I think I'll go Joel Ward of Crystal Palace. At left back, I'll go Danny Rose. At centre-back... If we're just going worst, then Craig Cathcart is one. And to be fair, Cabaselli is probably the other. Although, I'll go Paul Dummett or Kieran Clark, whichever of them is in the Newcastle team, on a given day. Um, In midfield, the worst holding midfielder in the league that's a good one. Um, has to be a starter. Some clubs don't play a holding midfielder, so I will go. He's not a bad player, but Matthias Norman of Norwich—he's not a bad player at all. In fact, he's a decent player. But I—I I think of the of the holding midfielders that start in the Premier League. I think he's probably the worst. Um, in central midfield with him, you'd want to pick two. So Tom Cleverley—I mean, Tom Cleverley has to be in. He's one. Who the other one will be, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Let me think. I'm not putting in Fred. No, absolutely not. I'm not gonna be cruel to the poor man. But I do think it might be James MacArthur. Now again, he's not a bad player. Not a bad player at all, but I'll go with James MacArthur. Up front um Oh no, it's it's Adam Lalana. It is Adam Lalana. It's it's definitely Cleverly and Lalana as the number eights either side of Matthias Norman. That's the midfield. Up front, Danny Welbeck is, is the number nine, without a shadow of a doubt. With Christian Benteke alongside him, we're gonna go with the two big men, and then we want one more. In attack, Nathan Redmond or Theo Walcott, whichever one of them is starting on a given day, give me them as the other worst one. I think I think they're, yeah, I think that's that's what I'll take. Um, Adam Hanlon, do you think the possibility of Liverpool signing Adiemi may be a doubt due to the fact that we have Kate Gordon and. Um no, no, not at all, because he's a nine. And while he does have some traits of an inside forward, he is a nine. And I don't think Kate Gordon, who I think profiles as a ten long term, a Delhi Ali type ten, uh, I I don't think it'll have any impact. I, I think I think Ali is one that Liverpool could sign. I don't think anyone at the club will have an impact on that. Um Y M W A foodie. Can you do a SWOT analysis of the current top four—Liverpool, City, United, and Chelsea—at the same time? When you address the weaknesses, provide a possible solution to overcome this. When it comes to threat, apart from the other uh, competitors, please elaborate. Elaborate what else could be a threat to the club? Okay. So for those who don't know, a SWOT analysis is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So what can threaten your position? Um, So we might as well start with the Premier League champions. Manchester City. Strengths. Great manager. Great squad. In attack. great Sorry, great attacking talent in the squad. Incredible wealth behind them. Weaknesses, lack of quality depth at full back at left back, I should say, or lack of quality at left back in general. Um, lack of leadership. Opportunities. Well, their are opportunities that they can win everything that they can establish themselves as the dominant team in English, English football. They have the money to do it. They have the manager to do it. They have the setup to do it. Another one of their great strengths, I should have mentioned, is their setup. That club has a brilliant structure, and from their academy all the way through, is just phenomenal. Best in class. Um, in terms of how to address the weaknesses they just addressed them in the transfer market, I don't think there's anything else that really would concern me about City. Opportunity, yeah, to dominate. That's their opportunity. The The threat to them is basically that their financial doping gets uncovered. Uh, that's the biggest threat to them. And that, that could cause an, an incredible chain of events. But I think they can buy their way out of that anyway. The other threat is Pep overthinking things in finals. When Pep gets too deeply inside his own head, he does silly things like he did in the Champions League final. Like he's done in other European games. And that's a threat to them as well. Uh, we'll go Liverpool next. Strengths, great manager, great first 11, incredible home crowd. Weaknesses, lack of depth, lack of ownership funds. Lack of depth, you need to, they're, they're connected. Obviously, the lack of depth is due to a lack of ownership funding. Um, The threats to them will be the owners being so cheap that Liverpool's team just kind of ages out together and there isn't the calibre of backup behind them. There's also the threat that when Michael Edwards leaves, which is expected to be next summer, they won't replace him properly. And then when Jurgen Klopp leaves again, they wouldn't replace him properly. I missed opportunities. And again, I think their opportunities are... To continue to scout as well as they can and pick up players around the margins and develop lesser-known talents into elite-level talents the way they've done with Mane, with Salah, with Jota in recent years. You know, picking up those players that maybe fit a unique profile and building the team out that way. But that is a difficult way to operate. Uh, Chelsea, strengths, great manager. Great attacking talent, great midfield. Loads of money. Loads of money. Uh, Weaknesses. Individual defenders. The risk of their fans causing them to have to play games behind closed doors. With some of the hijinks and carry on. How you deal with that. You just start lifetime banning anybody who gets who gets caught racially abusing players or making the kind of remarks that we just really can't have anymore. And um, you you can buy the defenders you need, which they'll do in time, I think, under Thomas Tuchel. Uh, opportunities. Again, they're, they're a club that can do anything they want in the transfer market. I should have mentioned they've got a really a super strong academy as well. That's a great source of income for them. But they can do whatever they want in the transfer market and uh, and work their way through that. They have opportunities to be relatively self-sustaining because of how many players their academy produces. Um, And they can be a dominant team. That's, That's definitely something that's an opportunity for them. As for threats, Roman getting bored is the only real threat there. If Roman gets bored either of Chelsea or just of Tuchel... Uh, and decides to go a different direction. He's made bad managerial appointments in the past. He could do so again. If he gets bored like he did a few years ago. And decides not to fund any money into the club. That can be problematic as well. Um, Marina I think is a little bit of an issue. Because she seems quite spiky. And hasn't gotten along with a couple of the managers that have been there. But you know, she does a good job in the transfer market. Uh, Manchester United's strengths. Incredible commercial power. The, the commercial machine. Uh, a very good group of footballers. A huge home crowd every game. Weaknesses. Their right back can't control a the football. Their midfield is made of paper mache and could be strolled through by the weakest man in the world and their manager is a PE teacher. That would be a big weakness. I would say how you deal with that, you you sack Ollie, you sign a real manager, and you then go and you address your defence and your your right-back position in your midfield. Uh, opportunities to re-establish themselves as the number one team in England, to continue to grow their brand. Um, oh, I, I, keep, I, I missed a weakness as well. One of the weaknesses they have is the constant distaste towards the owners from the fans. I think that's always a volatile situation that can blow up at any time. One of the threats to the club obviously would be the Glazers continuing to milk money out of the club or deciding that, you know, we're going to settle for fourth every year and just continue to pull money out of the club, which they can't do under Ollie because Ollie's not a good enough manager to overcome that. But there will be managers that could just get them fourth every year with the you know, with the bare minimum of investment because they've got an immense academy, which I should have mentioned too, Um, and they produce a lot of good players, and they'll just always be a draw for players, and, you know, there'll still be enough money to buy a player each summer, if not two, even if the Glazers start to pull more and more money out of the club. Obviously, the banks calling in their loans could be a bit of an issue, just because it'll be quite difficult to find 500 million or whatever it is at one time. But uh, other than that, I think they'll be okay. But yeah, the, the threat of course is that Olly will Ollie will just continue to drag them down to his level um and that cristiano will have a big tantrum and that could be that could be problematic. Uh, it'll be definitely one that the owners would need to, to solve fairly quick. Uh so I hope that answers your question. I'm not very good at SWOT analysis, unfortunately. Uh so apologies for that. A uh, couple of questions then off the uh, the Twitter machine. Um, Gautam LFC, a top, was the best 11 in the championship and which Premier League teams might they fit? Right, uh, best championship goalkeeper I would say is probably Sam Johnston. I think he'd fit at Watford. I'd go Sam Johnston at Watford as um, for there best Championship right back. Jaden Bogle, Sheffield United, uh, really really good player. I think he fits a bunch of Premier League clubs. Uh, I would pop him in at Everton. I, I think they could definitely do with a Jaden Bogle type uh, left back. Anthony Robinson probably. Yeah, I'll say Anthony Robinson, and I will say West Ham. I think he'd be a good fit there as an attacking left back for them. Um, Centre backs. This is tough. I will say Jack O'Connell of Sheffield United and Tolson of Fulham. Not Dennis Adoy, Not on your life, guy. Jack O'Connell fits in a bunch of teams, but he is ideal for a back three. So if Watford want to play a back three, pop him there. Uh, other than that, he, he's capable of playing, I think, in mid-table. He'd be a very good defender under Dyche, even in the two. But I do think he's best in a three. Um, I'll put him at Wolves, because I think Wolves need a left-sided centre-back. I think Jack O'Connell is very underrated. People have forgotten how good he is because of the knee injury. Tolson can play for most teams. Um, really good centre back I'll put him at Wolves as well because uh, they're just desperately in need of centre backs um, so that'll be my back four, in midfield I will go I'll go Sander Berge, Sheffield United again he can play for anybody but if I'm going to put him somewhere Who's got a big hole in midfield? I'll put him with. I'll put him at Everton because they'd be quite interested to see a midfield three of Ducouré and Berger going box to box and Alan sitting. Arsenal, guys, Jess, and that would be another good fit. He could also fit at Spurs next to Heusberg in midfield. So, any of those clubs, he's a very good player. He's too good for the championship. Um. Jefferson Lerma of um of Bournemouth definitely needs consideration here. But I'll go Lewis Cook of Bournemouth. And I think Leeds is the perfect fit for him. And I'll go Harrison Reid as my third. Although Christian Beliak is I'll go Christian Bielak of um of Derby. Really good defensive midfielder, excellent positioning. I think he'd be a really solid fit for Norwich. So I'll go him. Um, yeah, that's that's what I'll go with in that regard. Uh, who else? What else do I want then? Um, Philip Billing would be another one worth considering, and Josh Knight. Josh Knight is a personal favorite. But I'll leave, I'll, I'll I'll stick with what I've got in attack then. I want a striker and two wingers because I've gone with a four-three-three type of thing, not by design, just kind of what I've ended up with. Grady D and Ghana, absolutely no question. West Bromwich Albion, really, really good player, big fan. Um, could fit for a lot of clubs, but I'd quite like to see him. I'd quite like to see him at Bournemouth. Oh no, no, not, not, not at Bournemouth. What I'm saying at Brentford. On the left of their front three, with Buomo, Tony and him, and him acting more as a winger, I think that would be a really good fit. He also works very hard. The other club I'd like to see him at is Burnley. So I'd like to see McNeil on one side and him on the other. I think that could be quite good. Uh, I'll go David Brooks of um, Bournemouth, and I will put him at Burnley. Him on the right, McNeil on the left. Um, I think that works quite well. And up front, I'll go Mitrovic of Fulham. I think he is probably the best striker in the league. Um, and I will put him. I'll put him on Southampton. Yeah, that's what I'll do. Right, hope that answers that one. Um, okay, this one is from Gum Gum Pistol. Uh, build an 11 of the best goals or worldies you've seen. Um, okay, so goalkeeper. I'm going to go with Jose Luis Chilivert. I cannot... He was playing for Vela Sarsfield, and he scored a free kick from about 45 yards out. So I'll go with him. He also scored a bunch of other goals, so he's he's the goalkeeper I'll take. Um, at right back, not many right backs have scored worldies that I've seen anyway. Um, Let me think. I'll come back to right back. Left back is Roberto Carlos. The free kick against France, without a shadow of a doubt. Ooh, I think I know my right back. Uh, England versus Argentina, nineteen ninety eight World Cup. Javier Zanetti scores a brilliant goal from a really well worked set piece. Not a worldly, but a brilliant goal. Um, I'll go with him as my right back. At centre back, Ronald Koeman, Barcelona champion, uh, European Cup final ninety two. And I'll put him next to Sanisa Mihailovic. Same situation as Chilivert. Not one specific goal, but basically a career worth of worldly free kicks. So I'll go with those two. Uh, Into midfield then, I'm going to go Michael Essien. You know the goal I'm talking about, the swerving volley. He's got a couple like that. Barcelona was one of them. I'll go Michael Essien. Next to him in midfield, Steven Gerrard who just, again, a career worth of worldies. My favourite is a goal against Middlesbrough, uh, where he controls it on his thigh and then just leathers the ball with the outside of his right foot swerving and dipping into the top corner. Uh, Gum-Gum Pistol has suggested Dejan Stankovic versus Schalke, and I, I love it. I'm going to go with that one as well. So I'm going to put him in in the team too. So I'm going to go with a box midfield. I'm going to have to enforce a sitting brief on Essien. No, a diamond midfielder, I should say. Gerrard and Stankovic, box to box. Maradona as the 10, the goal in 86. It's the best goal I think it's ever been scored. And you factor in everything involved. And the pitch. Gary Lineker has said that pitch had just been relayed and was relayed in squares. And when you put your foot down to turn, the pitch would actually move underneath your feet. To do what he did in that circumstance, in that heat, at that altitude, in that setting, it's Maradona, without a doubt. Um, Up front, I'm going to go Messi as one. And again, it's a career's worth of work. Find whichever one is your favourite. But that run from halfway that was just basically the Maradona goal recreated, that'll do for me. And the other one, Marco van Basten the 1988 European Championship final. That volley is still the greatest volley I think anyone's ever scored in their lives. So I'll go with that. Um, Hope that answers that. Stephen Smith is back to cause me more heartache. Had me crying last week. He's back to do it again. Um, Of players Liverpool have earned, which one would be your choice to come into the... Oh, to come into the current squad at their peaks. Okay. Robbie Fowler or Daniel Sturridge? Robbie Fowler. Fowler was a better finisher than Sturridge. Sturridge might have been a better all-round player, but Fowler, I think, was... A, I know he had bad injuries, but his tend to be impact injuries. I think he was more robust early on. I think his movement, his willingness to run in behind and his work rate, I think I'll go Robbie Fowler. Didi Haman or Momo Sissoko? I'll go Didi Hamann as a backup to Fabinho. Positionally brilliant, read the game well, solid pass to the ball. He was basically a poor man, Sabinho. I'll go him. Ian Rush or Fernando Torres? Rush. Pressing from the front. Better finisher. I'll go Ian Rush. Steve McManaman or Phil Coutinho? Steve McManaman. Steve McManaman could have played as an 8 in the Liverpool team. and Steve McManaman would have been the perfect number 8 for how Jurgen Klopp wants to play. If you look at how Harvey Elliott has been playing, and even how Jordan Henderson tried to play last night, Steve McManaman would have been incredible in that. We all saw Steve McManaman, remember, plays a central midfielder in a Champions League-winning Real Madrid team twice. Steve McManaman had the positional discipline, the tactical awareness to do that. Coutinho doesn't, it's McManaman. Daniel Agger or Alan Hansen, the problem with this is they're both left-side centre-backs, and Virgil van Dijk is a better left-side centre-back. I would say than either of them, but Hansen being right-footed could, in theory, make the switch easier. So we'll go with Alan Hanson, Kenny Dalglish or Mike Alone. It's Kenny Dalglish. It's not even close. He could play as an inside forward or in the Firmino role. Javier Mascherano or Steve McMahon, Steve um, McMahon. Steve McMahon's incredibly underrated, and as a box-to-box midfielder, it would add something new to this team. But I will go with Mascherano. Because he could play in the 6th role, he could play the more defensive left-sided eight role. He can play right back, and if you needed him to in a pinch, he'll slot in at centre back, and he'll man mark anybody. So if you're playing against, let's say you get PSG in the Champions League, you just say to Mascherano, just go and stand on Messi, where he goes, you go, and he'll do that for you. So I'll go with I'll go with Mascherano, Ronnie Whelan or Jan Mulby? Ronnie Whelan, more versatile. Better defensively, more mobile uh, Jan, incredible pass ball, incredible player But I don't know that he'd be a great fit in this Liverpool team I think, I think Ronnie could have dealt with the the demands of Jurgen Klopp uh, Steve Finnan or Alvaro Arbeloa Because he could play both sides Finnan might have been a better right-back But Arbeloa was a better full-back Because he could play both sides excellently And... Um, The final one then is is John Barnes or Luis Suarez. I am going to say that if you got Barnes, you could play him. Take the Elliott role from the right-hand side and move it to the left-hand side and allow Barnes to be that attacking midfielder from there. He would be perfect. He could also obviously play left-wing or right-wing cutting inside. If I'm getting prime John Barnes... Oh, that's tough. You've left the hardest one to last. Um, Suarez is the best player I've seen in a Liverpool shirt. I'm too young to have seen Barnes at his very, very best. That late 80s Barnes. I've seen videos and stuff, but I didn't see him in person. Saw Suarez in person. He was mind-blowingly good. I'm going to go Suarez. Just the off-ball stuff as well. That ability to just be a one-man wrecking crew going forward. I'll go Suarez. Uh, so that's it then. That is our show for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle. And I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.